This is my ubiquitous Go Cup. I usually has coffee in it, but today it has lemon water. And um, I like to call it my sippy cup. So um, I may be taking some sips from my sippy cup throughout my talk here. Okay. Mm, wow. We have a double portion this week. It's the um, Vayelach and Nitzavim. And they're both short, and they're both packed with some really rich stuff. Um, actually, this Acts passage is really rich too. Uh, I want to start today by talking about revival. Because revival is something that believers' hearts cry out for. It's a, it's a big theme in prayer. It's a, sometimes it almost becomes a buzzword. Um, sometimes the moment we see God beginning to do something, we say, Revival! Revival! Right? Um, I don't know, sometimes it, I almost think of the story of the boy who cry, cried wolf. Sometimes it, we can almost cry revival right away. And um, I, My heart really cries out for revival. I mean, I, I, think, I think depending on who you're talking to, it can mean one of many things. Uh, I, I appreciate there's a, there's a movement, they, they're like a revival movement based in Kansas City. And their idea of revival is basically when people meet, meet Yeshua, when they meet Jesus and their lives are changed to be like Him. Um, that's their idea. They've kind of been steering, they've kind of been stepping aside from a lot of the spectacular stuff or the glitz and glamour things that are maybe easy to point to revival but don't necessarily point to changes in people's hearts in terms of how they go home and treat their families, uh, do business, uh, stuff like that. that. That revival movement is with Steve Gray. He has a couple of books and I've enjoyed reading them. Um, one of their emphases in that, in that revival movement is recovering the Jewish roots of our faith. And uh, they have some interesting uh, material on that. So anyway, you know, there are, there are lots of different ideas about what revival looks like. Um, I, I want to give you a suggestion from this week's parasha that uh, may give us a good idea of what revival is going to look like. Uh, maybe the biggest revival ever. Um, it actually describes it quite clearly. Um, if this is what revival is, then I'm all in. Count me in. I'm, this, is, this is something that I would live for. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, uh, we have a passage here that in Hebrew is often called the parashat hatshuvah, um, like the parasha on teshuvah, the chapter of repentance. So this is the chapter that is about repentance. Um, if a Jewish person is repenting, or, if, uh, or, or during the month of repentance, the month of Elul, which is the one we're in, um, this is the chapter that will come up quite frequently. Um, there's even a special place for it in the Siddur, the uh, Jewish prayer book, where it just has the chapter of repentance, so that after your morning prayers, if you need to or if you want to, you can pray the chapter of repentance. So this is, a, this is something that is... All, sometimes read in the in the Jewish tradition also like every single morning of the uh, the month of Luol. You know, we talked about how the shofar is blown, how Psalm 27 is prayed. This is another passage that's often prayed. And uh, for that reason, it's very close to the Jewish heart and it gives us a very accurate understanding of what uh, a Jewish understanding of, of revival. So maybe we can look at that. Now what, I, what I'm basing this on is in, in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, it's, it concludes by saying, so that you may live. So that you may live. In, in Hebrew, it's lema'an chayecha. And uh, it's essentially the same concept as revival. Uh, revival is what? It is being vived again. 
Vive is like life, right? So a revival is being re-enlivened. Um, that's this concept here, the Hebrew term chaim, l'ma'an chayecha, like it says. And uh, for that reason, I think this chapter is about revival. So that you may live, how are some other ways we could read that? So that you may experience revival, so that you may experience long-term revival. Maybe that's the idea there. So I think this, is a, this would be a good chapter for us to look at for a second. Uh, I see four main elements in this, this passage on repentance and revival. Um, two of them are ones that we're really strong in as New Covenant believers. Uh, two of the other ones are ones that we sometimes uh, leave by the wayside or we, we, don't, we don't think about, about so much. Um, the, one, the one that I think really jumps out at us that we really take hold of is in verse 6 where it says moreover Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live and uh, we like that right like that's the circumcision of the heart I mean we're talking about the new covenant experience here right this is something that we've experienced through the, uh, through the new covenant so that's one of the things that jump out from this chapter um there are a couple others. Uh, we like the blessing concept, right? The next verse, it talks about, you know, the curses. He'll inflict those on your enemies and those who hate you. Um, <laughs> talks about prosperity in um, verse 9. These are a couple of the, these are a couple of the themes in uh, the, the chapter of repentance. But there are a couple more in here that uh, are connected to revival that we have yet to have seen fulfilled. Um, before we look at those, maybe we can ask ourselves, who is this chapter addressed to? The people of Israel, right? So, as I understand that, that means, yes, the Jewish people. It also means those of us who, through faith in, in Messiah, have been grafted into Israel. So, this is for all of us in this room, and uh, for a whole lot of other people who aren't in this room, <laughs> to borrow some terminology from this part. <laughs> um, so, this is for them, the Jewish people, and for those who are grafted in. Um, maybe we'll ask ourselves about the time frame of this. It sets the time frame in verse 1. It says, So it shall be, when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. And you call them to mind in all the nations where Yahweh your God has banished you. So uh, we, we, have two, we have two qualifiers here for the time frame. Um, firstly, it says, When all of the curses have come upon you, um, we, we read the curses last Shabbat. Um, I know when we were reading through the curses section, I was just cringing and kind of sinking lower and lower in my seat till by the end it was like, oh man. There, that, it can be pretty depressing to read, you know what I'm saying? Uh, the saddest thing is that these curses are things that have happened to the Jewish people historically. This is the story of national Israel. Um, and it's also the story of how Yeshua came to take those curses and to rescue us from, um, from the gates of Sheol, of course. But uh, anyway, it says here, when all of these curses have come upon you. Now, here, here, here's my understanding of this, okay? I mean, when the Romans swept through Israel in uh, 70, or, well, 68, 70 CE, um, and, uh, you know, they, they destroyed Jerusalem, they burned down the temple, they massacred literally millions of Jews, um, crucified like hundreds of thousands of men, that was a very dark time. Um, a lot of the curses of the Torah, you could say, did come upon Israel at that time. Uh, Josephus records some of the gory details of that. Um, I don't even really want to go into those right now. 
I, I think even if someone were to say, well, I don't know, maybe that wasn't the ultimate fulfillment. I, I, I think with the Holocaust in the last century, we could say that Israel has experienced all the curses of the Torah. Um, so I, I think we could say that, yes, we're in this time frame when all of the, the blessing and the curse, which he has said before us, and, you know, they, they happen. And, uh, and then it says, and you call them to mind in all the nations where you've been banished. So this is like a, this is, um, this is in an exilic time frame. Like it's when the people of Israel are in exile, right? Uh, yes, the Jewish people have begun to return, but there is still a very strong exile presence. Um, and the nation of Israel hasn't been fully restored either. We see that um, in incidents like the, uh, the, settler, the, the Jewish community in Gaza being pulled out, um, the Sanhedrin hasn't been reinstated, several things like that. So anyway, all that to say, this is a passage that is still happening and that's going to happen in the future. So let's look at a couple of these things that are going to happen in the future. Uh, we talked about the circumcision of the heart one. Woohoo! We really like that one. New covenant experience, right? Because we're, we're all about that. That's a gooder. Uh, we, we, we looked at verse 9 where it talks about prosperity. Woo, we like that one too, right? We're into prosperity. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we appreciate it when God blesses our, our uh, business enterprises and our endeavors. Um, that's a good thing. Here, here are a couple more elements of revival, though, that, uh, that sometimes get overlooked. In verse 2 of this chapter, it says, And you return to Yahweh your God and listen to His voice with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. So this is an element that we sometimes overlook when we, when we examine the concept of biblical revival. Returning to God. Of course we return to God, right? But what is the other half of the equation here? Listening to God's voice, according to all that Moses commanded the people of Israel. So we see that in biblical revival, there's this place for returning to God, and also for listening to what God commanded His people through Moses. That's, that's part of the equation, right? It's not the whole equation, but that's part of it that we sometimes overlook or, 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 um, or leave out. So that's, uh, that's why, you know, we're, we're doing this, this mitzvot thing. We're, we're, we're studying God's commands. We're, we're learning how they, uh, how they apply to our lives. Because it's part of biblical revival. <laughs> and it's going to be part of the biblical revival that happens with national Israel, too. Um, verses 3 to 5, this is pretty exciting. It goes on to say, Then Yahweh your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. So what's, the, what's this other element? This other element of him bringing his people back to the land of Israel. This is part of biblical revival. Um, this is a movement that started, what, in the 1870s or 80s uh, with, the, with the Zionist movement. This is part of revival. I believe that there's this, this distinct correlation, too, between the Jewish and the Christian world. When the Jewish people wake up to their identity, when they return to the land, when they embrace the covenant, it is going to have massive effect on the Christian world. It will bring revival to the Christian world also. Uh, we, we, we see that over and over again. Um, there's this correlation between let's just say Israel and the church. Um, I'm hesitant to use those terms, but for instance, when Israel took the city of Jerusalem in 1967 and regained sovereignty over that city, it was like, boom! There was like a fire that broke out in, in, in uh, the body of Messiah. And uh, the Jesus People movement is an example. There's, it's not a coincidence that these things happen at the same time. Um, I think that's going to happen to even greater degrees in the future. Yeah. So... There, there are two places in, in this repentance chapter where it talks about doing something with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, do we really use that term too often today? 
Maybe, maybe if you're like feeling really romantic and you're really trying to express romantic love to someone, maybe you'll use terms like that. But they're really dramatic terms. Do you know what I'm saying? With all my heart and with all my soul. Um, I, I'm going to give you a suggestion here to try and get like the equivalent of what this is saying in English. Read this as for real. Okay? Where it says that you do something with all your heart and soul, read it as you're, you're doing it for real. And if you, if you read it like that, it may, you may kind of catch more of the smash of it. Um, for instance, in verse 2 it says, You return to Yahweh your God and listen to Him with all your heart and soul. Um, read this as, You return to Yahweh your God and you listen to Him for real. Does that make sense? That definitely fits the, uh, the nuance of the passage. Um, going on in verse 10, it says, If you listen to the voice of Yahweh your God to keep His commandments... Uh, yeah, and then it finishes here. If you turn to Yahweh your God with all your heart and soul. So again, if you turn to Him for real. You know, there's sometimes when we just go through the motions, we kind of do things. And I mean, I do this, you know. Sometimes I want it so bad, I try and just, I try and just act accordingly. But like the real thing isn't there, you know. So it's saying like, He's going to do this in our lives for real. And uh, that, really, that really excites me. So maybe, maybe I can just recap here a couple of these themes from this, from this chapter of repentance. Um, firstly, it happens in the time frame after the people of Israel have experienced the curses of the Torah. So we could say post-Holocaust. Um, it happens when the people of Israel are in exile, uh, which is post-Second uh, uh, Temple era. Um, there are several things that happen in conjunction with this revival, this biblical revival of Israel, which includes the body of Messiah. Um, listening to, okay, turning to God and uh, factoring in his, his commandments, as Moses commanded. Um, returning to the land of Israel. Um, circumcision of the heart, which is a new covenant experience. Um, him removing the curses and placing them on the enemies. Prospering, him prospering, his people. Yeah. So wow, talk about a prophetic chapter, hey? Now there's a reason that I think this hasn't all happened yet. Uh, in Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about revival too. He talks about this, this uh, enigma. Why, did, why didn't the Jewish majority... Uh, receive Yeshua as uh, the Messiah, if indeed He was the Messiah. Um, why are all these Gentiles coming into the faith when this is uh, supposedly a Jewish thing? Um, you know, there were a lot of questions that were that were bouncing around in the, the early believers' conversations. And uh, Paul talks about life from the dead in uh, Romans chapter nine. This wasn't in my notes, but I think it's really relevant. Hey, let, let's try Romans 11. I think it, we'll find it in Romans 11 a little better. Okay, um, Paul talks about revival. Um, the, another Hebrew term for revival is life from the dead. Can we all say life from the dead? Okay, that means like massive, sustained revival. Okay, when life from the dead comes to the body of Messiah, that is massive, sustained revival. And Paul gives a time frame for this. He gives a key. He says... Uh, in Romans 11, verse 12, referring to the Jewish people, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? 
And then moving on in verse 15, he says, If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? What will their acceptance, referring to the Jewish people, be but life from the dead? So, what do we see here? We see this connection between the Jewish people receiving Yeshua and massive sustained revival. And uh, we just read Deuteronomy 30 where we, where we saw its description of that revival uh, very succinctly. Wow. Thank you, Father. Bring it on, Father. We, we pray that we can be a part of this and, and see it with our own eyes and, and be prepared for when, when this really breaks out, Father. And thank you for how this is already happening around the world. Um, okay, let's just, let's just look through the parsha. I want to um, draw out a couple themes that are particularly relevant. There's this, uh, there's this theme of community that pops up over and over again in these parshas. And uh, I wanted to touch on that for a moment. Open cup. There, that will help. Okay. In, uh, in chapter 29, verses 10 to 13... This is the beginning of the parasha. Moses saying, you, are all, you all stand here before Yahweh your God and, uh, so that you may enter into a covenant with Him so that He can make you His people and He's going to be your God. Um, to, to paraphrase what he's saying. And I really like how it begins here. At the end of verse 10, he lists these different like, social categories. And then he says, All the men of Israel... And in Hebrew, it literally says, Kol Ish Yisrael. Like, all the man of Israel. Can we, can we, let's learn that together. Kol is all. Ish is man. Ish. And uh, Israel is Israel. <laughs> so, Kol Ish Yisrael is all the man of Israel. And this is the term used for the people of Israel entering into the covenant. And, uh, this, this is a huge concept. Uh, often in the Western world, we think independently, right? We think like we're, we're quite individualistic and that can be a strength. But uh, sometimes when it comes to understanding some of the dynamics in the Torah, it can also be weakness. Um, it's, it, usually when we think about the New Covenant, for instance, the covenant that we have with God through Messiah's blood, it's a very individualistic thing, isn't it? Like, you invite him into your heart, you pray the sinner's prayer, you, you enter into it, and then you will um, you know, have eternal life and stuff. But uh, we often don't really think about the new covenant in terms of how like, we as a community have this new covenant with the God of Israel through Messiah's blood. That's something that I have a hard time thinking in terms of. But uh, what we see in the Torah here is this covenant was a covenant that the whole nation entered into. It wasn't a covenant that like an individual entered into, or a whole bunch of individuals. It was a, a covenant that a whole nation entered into as one, as, as one man. And uh, it, it uses uh, similar terms actually twice more in these parshas. In uh, 31 verse 1, it says, Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. So we learn that the book of Deuteronomy was addressed to all of us as a nation. Not only then, but us now also. We'll, we'll be discovering more about that in a second. Um, also in 31 verse 11, it says, When all Israel comes to appear before Yahweh your God at the place which he'll choose. Uh, referring to like Sukkot, when you go up to Jerusalem and then the Torah is read on the seventh year. So again, it's this concept of not just a bunch of individuals going up to Jerusalem, but 
all Israel going up to Jerusalem. Um, the the uh, the Torah term here is more like I, I said, Kol Kol Yisrael. Um, the popular Hebrew term today is Kalal Yisrael. Can we say Kalal Yisrael? I want to teach you this because it's a very common word in Judaism and it's very meaningful. I'll read you uh, Wikipedia's definition of Kalal Yisrael. It explains uh, literally all of Israel. Kalal Yisrael is an expression that is often used among Jews of different movements, streams, and ethnic backgrounds to describe a sense of shared community and destiny among all Jews, religious and non-religious, in Israel or in the diaspora. Okay, so this is talking here about Jewish people referring to the Jewish people. But I'm going to read this again, and think about this not just in terms of Jewish people, but in terms of believers, members of the body of Messiah. Could, could this term Kalal Yisrael refer to that also? So I'll read this again for you. Um, Kalal Yisrael, literally all of Israel, is an expression that is often used among Jews of different movement streams and ethnic backgrounds, to describe a sense of shared community and destiny among all Jews, religious and non-religious, in Israel or in the diaspora. Wow. Like, when we begin thinking in these terms, we get such a massive vision of the body of Messiah and what the God of Israel is doing with His people around the world. Even here in Prince Albert, hey? It's all of a sudden like, I don't just think in terms of my denominational box or my little group and, how, and, and whatever, the little things that maybe define us. I think in bigger terms. I think in terms of Kalal Yisrael. I think in terms of the whole body of Messiah. Um, and that, that is, uh, that's exciting that that worldview is in the Torah. That understanding is in the Torah. Um, along those lines, <laughs> in Deuteronomy 29... Verse 14, Moses says, this is rather enigmatic if you ask me. We'll have to try and figure this one out together. He says, not, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of Yahweh our God and with those who aren't with us here today. <laughs> so we're making this covenant with those of us who are here today and those who aren't here with us today. <laughs> the question is, who are the people who weren't there with them today? <laughs> Any ideas? Their descendants? Mm -hmm. And what? Believers? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that's probably you hit both of the nails on the heads right there. Yeah, it's talking about the descendants, the physical descendants of Israel. And I think it could also be talking about those who are grafted in through faith in Messiah. <laughs> that means the Torah is about you too. <laughs> It means it's part of your heritage. So maybe we could, um, hmm, maybe we could do a little, a little tiny skit to help us uh, illustrate this idea. I, I don't have this planned, so we're just going to do this because I just, I just got the idea. I love skits. It really helps me figure stuff out. Okay, so let's say that um, I need like two people to come and stand right here. Wayne and chair. You, you, can be, you can be the people who are standing right there. Okay, so let's say that you are like the people of Israel who, are, who Moses is addressing in this passage. You are the ones who are entering into the covenant. You're the generation that survived the 40 years in the wilderness and probably the severe boredom that you experienced then. And anyway, here you are on the threshold of Israel and Moses is talking to you and he's saying, okay, so those of you who are here, you are coming into the covenant. And those of you who aren't here, so we need a couple people who aren't here to come up. 
Need a couple more volunteers. Huh? Here, you, you two come over here. Uh, but you need to quote aren't here. So you come over here. Siri, you come up too. This will be perfect. Okay, so you, 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 you people aren't here, okay? So you stand behind me, okay? Okay, Dee's not here either. What? I have to admit, I don't feel like I'm all here today either. So, okay, so, so you're the people who aren't here, okay? So this is just a picture. So here's Moshe, like, talking to the people of Israel who are here, and he's also referring to the people who aren't here. Namely, like, the little descendants... And the people who have been grafted in through faith, right? And like all of us together are entering into this covenant. And uh, there's one more really cool thing about this that I, I want to illustrate. And I even have some cool papers here. You guys have to stay there for one sec. This is going to be like one of those really cool deeper teachings. Oh shoot, I just bumped the camera I think. There, let's try that. Okay, so uh, here we have a paper. These are two Hebrew letters. Can you, can you see what they are? Mm-hmm. Someone read them for me. Aleph. Aleph. And Tav. And Tav, that's correct. Now, Yeshua said in the book of Revelation, he's the Alpha and the Omega, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. However, I think there's a good chance that Yeshua talked Hebrew to Yochanan because Hebrew, um, Yochanan spoke Hebrew. Um, if that's true, then what did Yeshua say he was in Hebrew? That's right. He said he's the Aleph and the Tav. Now the cool thing about that is, there is a two-letter word in the Hebrew Bible that is spelled Aleph and Tav. And it comes up in really interesting places, and it's not translated because it doesn't have a grammatical equivalent in English. So, um, anyway, this, this word comes up a couple of times in this passage. So, here, I'll, I'll give you guys each one. You can hold this up, kind of hold it over yourselves or something. Alright. So, this, uh, I, I, whenever I see the Hebrew term Aleph and Tav, which is pronounced at in the Torah, I mean, yes, it does serve a grammatical function, but I also stop and I ask myself, could this be communicating something about Mashiach? Because the Aleph, Yeshua said, I'm the Aleph and the Tav. So, the interesting thing about this passage is, in Hebrew, um, Moses said, I may, like, um, I'm, this covenant is with those who are here, but in Hebrew it says, this covenant is with et, who are here. And, and then he goes on to say, and this covenant is with et, those who aren't here. So this covenant is with the Aleph and Tav and those who are here, and this covenant is with the Aleph and Tav and those who aren't here. So what, what, what I get out of that is it's like, it's like it's saying that Yeshua as the mediator between heaven and earth, between the people of Israel... And the God of Israel, he was there at that covenant made in the book of Deuteronomy. So the people of Israel who were there, they entered into covenant through Messiah. It's not like Messiah wasn't part of that equation, right? And likewise, those of us who come later, whether we be like physical Jews or grafted in, or we don't have a clue what our background is, but we're like totally into, into the God of Israel, you know? Like, what, who, who's our entry point? Yeah. Yeshua, who said he's the Ed, the Aleph and the Tav. So it's like this really cool, deep teaching that I know the early believers understood, that, but that we don't get because we read our English Bibles and we don't have this cool little word in them, right? So, yeah. Good job on this kit, you guys. Woohoo! Yeah. 
We'll have our, our, two, our two audience members give them a good round of applause. <laughs> that was pretty good. We had like how, ma- how much uh, audience involved in, or in, in that skit? Out of like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Out of like nine of us, we had seven of us um, in the skit. That's pretty good. Hey, Don. Yeah, so hopefully that gives us a, an understanding of that concept. Sin and idolatry. Uh, you know, there's sin in our culture, uh, there's idolatry in the Western world, but did you ever notice that it's usually packaged really well? Like, really. Sin is usually pretty glitzy. Um, idolatry, like, you're talking some pretty glamorous stuff here. Um, often it's really highly valued in our culture, and then you start reading the word and you're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe that isn't something that God values the same way. And, um, there's an interesting passage in here where Moses uses a Hebrew term that's a little less than polite in reference to idolatry. And I wanted to share that with you. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 17, he says, Moreover, you've seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them. He's talking about when Israel was going through those nations on their way to the land of Israel. And they saw these different idols. And it was the same back then. I mean, idolatry was a little more clear-cut back then. You had a literal idol in a temple, and you would go and you'd bow down to the thing, and you would do certain rites. But man, they were pretty impressive back then, too. I mean, you're talking about gold-plated, like really shiny and attractive, you know? Um, Super expensive. Um, And then, of course, like they would really soup up the, uh, the religious observances around these things. And they were pretty attractive, just like idolatry is today. But um, Moses calls them, <laughs> he refers to these idols as two things. Um, the first one is like the word for something that's disgusting, shikuts. Can we all say shikuts? It's the same thing that he said like you're to regard unclean foods as, as like disgusting as uh, shikuts, right? And um, so that's the first thing he calls idols. And then the next thing he calls them is uh, giluol. Can everybody say giluol? Yeah, giluol. So it's like, he, in, in Hebrew says that like shikutsehem, they're shikutses, and uh, gilulehem, like they're giluls. And uh, the first word is like something really disgusting. The second word is like, what goes into your toilet? Okay, so that, 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 that was like Moses' evaluation of like these idols that the nations um, valued so highly. And um, man, you know, uh, that was something that really was hitting me this last week at camp. Um, like the enemy of our souls... The one who comes to just tear families apart and destroy lives and, and break hearts and, and just like trash the planet and deface the image of God in humanity. Um, like the enemy, Satan, you know, he's, he's so ugly. Like he's so disgusting. He, he, he stinks so badly. Like if you were in the same room with him, you'd, you'd throw up, you know? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and yet like... And yet he's somehow able to come across as so attractive sometimes and so smooth and so appealing and so whatever. It's like, gets these like cool temptations and gets them really nicely packaged and really throws them all over in our faces through the media and through our culture. You know, and times like that, it's helpful to just stop and remember what the Torah has to say about idolatry. You know, the bottom line is it is disgusting in the end. We're going to realize how disgusting it is. And it's... Uh, it's tantamount to the stuff that goes down the toilet. <laughs> um, actually, there's a, there's a term that Paul uses that's like a, an equivalent term here in uh, Philippians chapter 3. 
And maybe this is the other half of the equation. This is like the bigger picture. Uh, Paul is listing all of his credentials. You know, I mean, like he was like the quintessential Hebrew speaker, right? He had memorized the whole Torah. He could quote the thing like boom, boom. He, uh, you know, he was like more observant than anybody else. Probably uh, um, all of all of these things. He even knew what tribe he was from. But um, I guess that didn't do it for Paul. Yeah. So after he lists all these things, then he says, um, whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Messiah. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Yeshua, my Master, Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Messiah. And uh, this, this term is, again, it's, it's politely translated as rubbish, but it's the same word for what goes into the latrine. Alright? So he's saying, like, all this stuff that I could say, yeah, this is profitable to me, or I have received gain through this, or, you know, I, this really makes me a, a cool guy, or gives me some credentials, or whatever. He's like, it's all garbage. You know, compared to knowing Yeshua, all I want is to know Yeshua. And, and that challenges me. It just, one thing that it tells me is, like all of the stuff that we could take some pride in or boast in a little bit or say, yeah, no, I, I'm doing this and most people aren't doing that, this, or I believe this and most people just haven't realized this yet. It's like all of that stuff, it, if it takes us away from knowing Yeshua, like in a humble and intimate way, maybe it's, maybe it's disgusting. Maybe it's tantamount to idolatry, eh? Um, maybe, this is, maybe this is the connection between a couple of these terms. Yeah. Man, oh, there's so much rich stuff in this parsha. I just, I'll give you a couple little like other a little uh, insights here. In twenty nine thirteen of Deuteronomy, where it talks about them entering into the covenant, it says uh, in verse twelve that you may enter into the covenant with Yahweh your God and into His oath which Yahweh your God is making with you today, in order that He may establish you today as His people, and that He may be your God. Uh, the Hebrew term there for establish. When I think of establish, like if I were to do a, a motion with my hand, I would, I would do something like this. Like establish you as his people. I don't know, what, what would you do? As like a hand gesture or something. Maybe something like that. But the, uh, the Hebrew term is the word for raise or resurrect. And that brings it to life. This whole covenant thing, becoming his people through the covenant. It's like... He used the term for resurrection there in Hebrew. It's like calm. Can everybody say calm? Yeah. And um, so you could read that like, in order that he may resurrect you today as his people and that he may be your God. So remember how we were talking about those who are here and those who aren't here and how they both come into the covenant through Messiah who is the Oliphant Tov? Well, hey, when did that become real? When did that become actualized? I suggest to you it was when Yeshua was raised from the dead. That was a pivotal historical event in the covenantal history of the people of God. There was something about Yeshua's resurrection that made good on all the previous covenants, ratified them, and like made them real, renewed them in the great new covenant. I just I feel like it's too big a thing for me to be able to even wrap my mind around. I can just like I can sense it there, you know. Um, interestingly enough. 
Some of this terminology is used in conjunction with Yeshua being raised from the dead. In, um, in Yohanan, in John chapter 20, verse 17, Yeshua is raised from the dead and uh, he, he has an encounter with Miriam and she realizes who he is. She says Rabboni to him, which means teacher. And then in, uh, in Yohanan chapter 20, verse 17, it says, Yeshua said to her, Stop clinging for me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So can you hear the covenant term there? My God and your God. When did he most truly and fully become the God of Yeshua's disciples? Yeah, in conjunction with the resurrection. And that's true of our, in our lives too. I mean, of course he's always our God, right? But I don't know, have you ever had times when he didn't really feel like your God? It was like, he is so massive and awe-inspiring and powerful. And he has such a heroic heart, like he wants to save the planet. And I am just not feeling it today. Like I'm not feeling connected. It would, you know, like I'm sure we've all had times like that. It's like, yes, he's supposed to be my God, but why doesn't it feel like, why isn't my life saying that? I mean, I, I've even been wrestling with that with having a cold for the last two days. I mean, I, I read the Torah, I know very well, he is like Yahweh Rofi, he's like Yahweh my healer, right? So why am I not experiencing his healing? Of course he's my God, but is there more to this thing than what I'm experiencing, eh? And uh, I, I, I suggest to you that at times like that, maybe there's more to the resurrection that we have yet to have tapped into. Maybe there's more to that power that raised Yeshua from the dead that we can still experience in our lives. Um, maybe... Yeah, um, actually, there's an interesting question in this parasha that I think sums up that sentiment very well. Um, Deuteronomy 31, verse 17. Deuteronomy 31, 17. Oh, it's a really, it's a really depressing passage where he says, okay, you know, they're going to go into the land, um, they're going to play fast and loose with me, and um, they are going to leave me. And then he says, Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed, gobbled up, and many evils and troubles, tribulations will come upon them, so that they will say in that day by Yom Hahu. Okay, listen, this is the question. Isn't it because our God isn't among us that these evils have come upon us? And uh, I, I recognize, for instance, from the story of Job, that there are times when someone will be living a totally righteous lifestyle and they will still experience personal tragedy, uh, they will experience loss, they'll experience um, health uh, breakdown, whatever. I mean, these things happen. Sometimes they happen as tests, so we can, we can honor the name of God in the midst of it, eh? Um, sometimes there are, there are elements to these these experiences that we don't understand. But I do think there are times also when we're going through when we're experiencing evil, when we are under tribulation, and sometimes it doesn't hurt to stop and say, isn't it because our God isn't among us that this stuff is happening? Isn't it because there's more to His presence than what we're experiencing? Could it be sometimes? I think so. I mean, I, I've been doing some soul searching in the last couple of days. Father, like, why am I so sick? You know? Um, where is your presence in my life? Is there... Could there be more to your presence? Could be, there be more to the power of the resurrection than, than what I'm experiencing? Yeah. I have more questions than answers. 
Oh, man, I, I really appreciate this Shabbat. It just feels like, like this is a really real Shabbat. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, that feels good. Um, there, there's, there's another element um, to this also. By the way, like, I wish you could see my notes here. I am bouncing all over the place in my notes. I'm just trying to like, I, I, there's some things that are just really connecting, so I'm just kind of going with them, hey? Um, there, there's another element to this in like uh, Deuteronomy 29.29. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this Torah. Um, I've had times in my life where I have gotten severely depressed um, thinking, thinking along certain lines, asking certain questions. Um, I can still get myself really depressed really fast. Like, I, I, really, I really care. I really care about all the people in the world. And so, you know, when I see on the news or I read about people who are starving to death, um, you know, children who are abused, um, human trafficking... I mean, all the injustice in this world, I, it really bothers me. Um, especially when I'm experiencing injustice. For some reason, when I'm experiencing injustice, I all of a sudden care all the more about other people in the world who are, you know? I kinda, it's kind of funny, but it, it's true. And that's when I get really riled up about injustice, when I'm on the receiving end of it. But anyway, it's like, at times like that, I, I really start wrestling with the big heavy hitter questions about why is there suffering in the world, and how could a God who's loving and all loving and all powerful allow stuff like this? Why could he let this happen to me, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, but I mean, you know, there, there are a lot of big questions. Um, after the Holocaust, I mean, the Jewish people have had massive questions to wrestle with, and you know what, sometimes we haven't done very well wrestling with those questions. You end up with atheists or people who just don't want to even think about anything spiritual and who just want to survive. You know, um, there, there are a lot of questions that are going to hit us throughout life. Um, and th- this, this like scripture here has been my medicine. It has been my therapy. It has been the verse that I think has helped me stay sane sometimes. It has been the verse that's helped me retain faith in the creator of the universe, even when I'm really mad at him, or I do not understand him, or I'm having major, uh, a major faith crisis. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this Torah. So we learn from this passage that there are two categories of, of reality. There are two categories of existence. Um, there's this light area, things that have been revealed to us that we can see clearly, that we can understand. And there's this other area that isn't light, it's dark. It's things that are concealed. They're mysteries. They have not been revealed to us. And uh, according to this passage, that stuff belongs to him. That's his business. But this stuff that he has given us clearly and plainly, this is our business. And um, where does the rubber meet the road with some of these questions? Just doing what God said. Observing the Torah and teaching our children, our grandchildren, uh, the people in our lives to do the same. So, um, this is the, you know, sharing this verse is more like a personal journal entry. Sharing a personal journal entry with you, you know. But um, that has really pulled me through some tough times. Just remembering there are areas of mystery and ultimately they're not my business and I can just let those go to God and just trust that he's taking care of the stuff that I do not understand. And um, there is another area that directly affects me and that's what I can take care of. You know what? Maybe I don't understand why there's evil in the world, 
but I have a wife and daughter, and my first responsibility is just to love them and take care of them. You know, each of us, we have people in our lives that, that we can love and serve and take care of. And ultimately, that's the backbone of the Torah, isn't it? That's what it hangs on, loving each other, serving each other. So um, what would be the conclusion with that? Let's make sure we never get so tied up in little knots over doctrinal minutia or over plaguing questions that we forget about serving the people in our lives and just being there for them and loving them, hey? In one verse before that, in 29.28, it says, And Yahweh uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day. It's like um, what people are going to be noticing when the exile has happened. And people like Mark Twain go to visit the land of Israel in the 1800s. Did any of you ever uh, read his travel his travel account, um, his visit to Israel in the 1800s? You read a part of it? Yeah. He, yeah, he just he wrote about how desolate Israel was, how uninhabited it was, not a pretty place. Kind of, uh, kind of along the lines of what this, uh, this Parsha is talking about. And um, there's something notable here. In a, I don't have this on an overhead today. I'm sorry. I'll just you'll just have to take my word for uh, take me at my word for this. But there's an enlarged letter in this verse. Uh, it's the letter Lamed. Does anyone know what a Lamed looks like? Here, Genevieve, come and show us. Come and draw a big Lamed in the air for us. <laughs> no, no, come up here. I have to draw like at least five feet tall. Huge. <laughs> So we can see it. Wow, that was a good lamed. Good job. Yay! So anyway, there's an enlarged lamed. Um, <coughs> in the word for cast them out, vayash lichem. Now the question is, what does lamed symbolize? What is it a picture of? What, does this, what, is, what is the deeper teaching here? That's right. The lamed is the shepherd's staff. It's also like an ox goad. It's the root for the Hebrew term for a disciple. What's the Hebrew word for a disciple? Well, that's an apostle. Shaliach is an apostle. But that was the word that we just... That's the, that root is the one that we're talking about right here. The lamed is in that term shaliach. But what's the word for disciple? Talmid. That's correct. Talmid. Okay. So, um, we're going to draw all this together here, this idea. When he, this is what I understand it saying. Like, when he casts his people Israel into the nations, when he throws them all over the planet, exiled from the land, he's saying, even at that time, I will shepherd you. My shepherd's staff will be with you. I will be guiding my people, even as they wander through the nations. Um, that is one understanding that you could get from that. And uh, when you read even about the history of the northern tribes and how they were exiled, and certain segments of them ended up, even, uh, even today they're discovering segments of them in, in China and in India and in other countries. You, you see, wow, he really was with them. He really did guide them for centuries and centuries. His shepherd staff was with them. And... Uh, And there's another, another, on the other level, like, the Lamed equals disciples of Yeshua, right? 
So it's, it's like him saying, I will cast my people into all the nations of the world. And then, and there they will become disciples. There they will become disciples of Yeshua. Um, interestingly enough, that, like, like you just said, Sharon, where it says he will cast them into the nations, that root there is shalach. It's the same for send, or uh, like to apostle, to send as an apostle. So we just, again, like these are some big themes. They, uh, they cover a lot of history, and there are multiple layers of meaning, but I just want to try and give you a glimpse of, of uh, why there's a, a, an enlarged lamad there, what that could mean to us. Yeah. Um, let's, let's, let's do a quick overview of Acts here. There are, a couple, there are a couple things in Acts specifically that I wanted to draw out from this passage. Hmm. Thank you, Yeshua, for your word. I don't know. I just, I feel like this life, this like life when we begin to study the word together and talk about it, you know, it's like you just get closer to the master and you just feel his, his energy. As we've been studying through Acts, I've been pointing out Hebraisms in this book, uh, Hebrew terms and phrases that come up. Um, I've been pointing out areas where you can see that the author of Acts and the early Yeshua movement, they were, they still had a very strong Torah element there. And um, I just want to point out a couple of specific instances of that in, 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 this, um, in this document. Um, so we'll be looking at Acts chapters 19 to 23. The first, the first thing that jumps out at us is this story about these guys in Ephesus who, uh, whom Paul discovered, and uh, they had been baptized into John's baptism, but that's as far as they got. <laughs> I mean, Yeshua had already come, and the disciples had already received the Rech HaKodesh, and this thing was going full bore, and these guys were still like, they were still in the John thing, because they didn't even hear any, the rest of the story, hey? And, uh, and so thankfully, uh, um, Paul was able to fill them in. And I don't know, assumedly, they probably heard this from Apollo, because Apollo was out there preaching, and he, had only, he, had only, he was only familiar with the, the baptism of John also, right? But there's something really notable about this. It says that, these guys came to faith in Yeshua, they were immersed in his name, and yet there was still something that they hadn't fully experienced. What was that? That's right. In verse 6 it says, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Ruach HaKodesh came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about twelve men. So uh, th- this tells us something. It just tells us he has a greater experience of the Ruach Hakodesh, the Holy Spirit, for you, for me. Even some subsequent to coming to faith in Yeshua, subsequent to being immersed in His name, there's a greater experience of the Ruach Hakodesh, and I believe that for myself. I, I am seeking Him for that on a regular basis. I'm, I, I'm like letting Him prepare me for that because it's coming. I know it's coming. It's there. Yeah. Um, something else interesting. Often people will say, well, you know, the sign of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. That's the sign. And uh, you know what? It is a sign. And it's a sign to be valued. But uh, sometimes we kind of selectively read the scriptures. What is the other sign in this passage? It says they were prophesying. And that says that on numerous occasions. When someone has like a God encounter and they are filled with the Spirit, they don't just speak in other languages that people can understand. They speak clearly and intelligently in a language that people can understand. They communicate the Word of God powerfully, boldly, clearly. And uh, for that reason, I think, Paul said in, the, in Corinthians, you know, out of all the gifts, you should really want to prophesy. Like, you should really be praying for that one. 
And um, that's something that I pray for on a regular basis. That's something I, I pray for all of us, that he would give us that gift. So, hey guys, Shabbat Shalom. Yeah. So that's something that jumps out. Uh, 19 verse 8. This is interesting. Um, Shaul is in the synagogue for three months, and uh, he's reasoning with people about the kingdom of God. Now, I, 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 I'm, I'm reading through the Antonicene Church Fathers. That's like all of the early uh, Christian writers from, uh, you know, like the, from the book of Revelation to uh, the Council of Nicaea in Constantine's time, early 300s. I'm reading through Ignatius right now. And um, something, like Ignatius was about a century after Yeshua's ascension. And uh, he's saying some stuff that I have some problems with. Um, that is like, viciously anti-Semitic. Things like, where there's Christianity, there can be no Judaism. Like, what? That, this, is, this is Ignatius. This is one of the church fathers. And I just, I'm, I'm not, okay, I'm not going to react right now. I'm not going to go, all I can say is like, this guy was involved in some polemics, I think. He obviously saw Christianity and Judaism as antithetical to each other. Um, Whatever. All I can say is, it's interesting that Paul was in the synagogue for three months, and he wasn't telling these people about Christianity and reasoning with them about a new Gentile religion. He was reasoning with them about the kingdom of God. Uh, my conclusion from this passage alone would be that the kingdom of God doesn't make someone less Jewish if they're Jewish. It, it just, maybe it just empowers their Jewishness. Maybe it enables them to go out and like, bring the message of the God of Israel that is communicated in the Tanakh to the nations of the world. Help them to kick the idolatry habit and uh, get on track with the Almighty. You know what I'm saying? Maybe, the kingdom, maybe that's what the kingdom of God is about. Maybe it's not about a new religion that hates Judaism and wants to see Judaism destroyed. Um, actually, we're going to see a verse about that a little later. Here, here's an interesting passage. Uh, we see that Yeshua, in terms of his, uh, the way that he trained leaders, is he brought them close to himself and they lived with him for several years. Um, there's a good chance that that's what Paul did also. Um, in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, it has this long list of men who accompanied Paul from quite a few of the cities where he started congregations. I'll just, I'll just read you this list of names. It says, And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. Uh, when you actually, when you, when you study and you look at the men who were connected with Paul from these congregations that he started, there was almost, there was something like nine or ten of them. So, all that to say that uh, it, was, it didn't end with Yeshua. There was specific leadership training that was happening in the early Messianic community. And part of our quest as a community is to figure out what that is today and uh, let Yeshua lead us in, in developing that. Um, in 20 verse 6, okay, here, I want to ask you guys something. The biblical festivals, do you find that as you do them, they kind of became a frame of reference for you? Like, they're big events on your calendar. You kind of think of, like, in terms of before Passover and after, after Passover, um, you know, before the, the, the High Holy Days and after them, things like that. Uh, we do. Um, I highly suspect that Luke and the early Yeshua movement did the same. <laughs> that, that pops up several times in this passage. Um, 20 verse 6, he references unleavened bread, matzot. He says, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. We can infer from this that 
these guys were busy in matzah in Philippi for those seven days. And they waited till they were done, their matzah feast, before they continued with their journey. So, what's another, what's another example of this? Um, 20 verse 16 says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he wouldn't have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. That is uh, the festival of weeks, Shavuot. Why was Paul hurrying to be in Jerusalem for Shavuot? It's really simple. Because God said to. (laughs) God said three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Master Yahweh at the place where he'll choose. That place was Jerusalem. It's really simple. But I don't know, like, I know growing up, these passages went right over my head. I never thought about this stuff. I, I think these passages go over the heads of most people in the body of Messiah today. You know, we just often will write off the biblical festivals as irrelevant, done away with, old covenant for the Jews, too controversial, whatever. But you know what? This is stuff that Paul and Luke and the early believers did. This was a normal part of their lives. Um, Who here has read The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee? Or heard of it? It's a pretty famous book. Um, I I read it when I was a teenager. Um, It's like, it's about the inner experience of the Christian, right? The normal Christian life. I, I suggest, though, that the normal Christian life isn't only an inner spiritual life, it's also an outer physical life structured according to God's calendar. Um, yes, the biblical festivals are part of the normal Christian life. Maybe in the millennium, like our dear brother Watchman Nee will like, write a sequel to the normal Christian life where he'll talk about how the biblical festivals are, are relevant to the life of the believer. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll too, be too busy doing other things to be, to be writing books. Maybe we'll be like just busy, like wanting to spend all our time listening to Yeshua uh, teach the Torah or something. Yeah. Okay, proof text. Sunday is the new Sabbath day and uh, the church, the Christian church should be meeting on Sunday morning, not on Saturday anymore. I'm going to give you the proof text. See right here, Acts 20 verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. Okay, so there you have it. Uh, End of discussion. The early church met on Sunday. Therefore, the Sabbath must have been changed. End of discussion. Uh, actually not, because that's not the end of the verse. Let's read the, the rest of the verse. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Okay. Now, uh, this doesn't work if the early believers got together on Sunday morning for breakfast. It means that Paul talked all Sunday morning, past 12 o'clock when everyone was checking their watches, talked all the way through the afternoon till supper time. He kept talking all the way through the evening till the sun set and people were all zonking out. And he kept talking all the way... I mean, th- I'm sorry, but that's just not how it happened. It, do- it doesn't make any sense. Well, what I'm saying here is... <laughs> you got me, Greg. <laughs> no, what, what I'm saying here is, you know, if, if we read this in context with the biblical understanding that the day begins at evening, then it makes a lot more sense that the early believers got together on Saturday evening um, to break bread, that Paul gave a message and that it went all the way till midnight and um, that he was going to leave Sunday morning on his trip. It's really simple, right? 
Really simple. So I don't know. That would be kind of interesting. What if, like, all of, what if, like, all of us Christians in the whole world started having, like, our services on Saturday evening? That would be kind of interesting, hey? I just, I wonder what that would look like. Some churches do meet on Saturday evenings, and I think it's a pretty cool idea. Anyway, there's um, obviously very strong precedent for that in this passage. And interestingly enough, that's a classic Jewish tradition. You go to synagogue, you, uh, you hear the Torah, you go home, uh, and you go home with some friends in the afternoon, you do some midrashing, you do discussion, um, and then you break bread. You have like the last meal of Shabbat on, on Saturday evening. And sure enough, that's exactly what these guys were doing. Wow. Um, 20 verse 36. This is, a, this is more like a matter of rubrics, like in terms of like liturgically how we, how we worship. But it's interesting that in, twice in, in, um, in this passage, we see the early believers kneeling to pray. It says, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And uh, then also in verse Verse 5 of uh, chapter 21 says, After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. I just, I just love that picture of the early believers kneeling in prayer. Such a, such a posture of humility. And um, that's something I've really been trying to incorporate in my liturgical life, in my, in my expression of prayer in the last couple of years. And man, it's hard, I'm telling you. It's like, I do not enjoy kneeling. Especially on hard floors. It's even worse. Um... I'm not saying we have to start kneeling at congregation even, right? But, um, you know, I, for the, I encourage you if, you, if you haven't knelt much in prayer, if it hasn't been a habit of yours, try it out sometimes. It's, I, I find it's really helped me to, like, to show reverence to the Almighty. Yeah. And, and, uh, and like, an unconditional surrender to Him also. Um, okay, Acts 21. This is powerful. Um, Acts 21, verses 15 to 26, talks about rumors, nothing more than rumors. Um, Verse 21, it says, um, this is like Yaakov and the elders of the Jerusalem congregation talking to Paul. And he's saying like, look at all these tens of thousands of Jewish believers, they are all passionate for the Torah. And apparently it sounded like that was a good thing. Then they go on to saying, And they've been told about you that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moshe, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. And most people leave it right there and say, See? There, there you go. That was Paul. Paul was teaching the Jewish people to uh, forsake Moses, don't circumcise your children, all that's done away with. Um, don't bother with Jewish tradition anymore. See? It says it right there. But then we don't read the rest of the passage where we discover that they're saying in verse, um, verse 23, yeah. Okay, no, in verse, 20, yeah, verse 24. So they say like, do the Nazarite vow thing, help these guys with their Nazarite vow thing, which in- interestingly enough involves animal offerings. Um, it also involves the purification ritual involving the ashes of the red heifer. Uh, get publicly involved with this. Why? So that all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you also walk orderly, keeping the law. So the common testimony from the early Jerusalem congregation was that Paul was a man who lived a kosher life. He walked orderly, 
he was Torah observant, he kept the law. It's so in your face. And we cannot understand the Pauline epistles, Paul's letters, unless we read this verse and understand it. Paul was Torah observant. Unless we read Paul's letters as coming from a Torah observant Jewish apostle, we are in danger of misinterpreting them. Yeah. So, anyway, a um, couple more interesting things. 21 verse 37, um, Paul is rescued from a, a murder attempt in the temple courts. And uh, he, he leans over to like the... It's in 21 verse 37 here. He leans over to the commander, the Roman commander. says, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, um, May I say something to you? And I love, I love the commander's response. This is so fresh. Do you know Greek? It's just, it's, it's interesting on a linguistic level that this commander was surprised that a traditional Jew knew Greek. That someone in the temple precincts knew Greek. Yeah. You know, sometimes people say, well, by, you know, by the second temple era, by Paul's time, Greek was the big pop language. Everybody spoke it. Um, there is some very strong evidence, and I'm going to be going into detail on this, not right now, but in uh, my Hebrew course that we'll be publishing under the Holy Language banner, um, that Hebrew was a living language, and it was the primary language of the Jewish people in the Second Temple era. So anyway, just keep that in mind. You know Greek? That was a surprise for him. Um, it goes on in 21 verse 40 and 22 verse 2 to say that Paul addressed the people there in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language. Yeah. And when he did that, they got real quiet. Uh, 22 verse 3 this, um, there was a point in my life where I really felt challenged by God to be a Jew for His glory. Like to be, to, to really embrace my identity 100% and to be proud of it and to live a Jewish lifestyle for the glory of Messiah. And this was the verse that hit me. This is the verse that got me. This is like a very uh, meaningful verse in my ideological journey. Paul says, I am a Jew. And then, he, and then he describes himself, right? But just, just get this for a second. Paul, after coming to faith in Messiah, he was able to say like loudly and proudly, I am a Jew. He didn't add any qualifiers. There was no ambivalence. He wasn't embarrassed, eh? Like, there are, like Jewish believers often are today. He was just able to say, I am a Jew. And uh, that's something that we support. You know, when a Jewish person comes to Yeshua... Be proud to say that you are a Jew. We support your Jewish identity. We want to strengthen your hands in that. Yeshua is going to make you more Jewish. He's going to make you a more dangerous Jew. In a good sense, eh? Yeah. Um, also in 23 verse 6, Paul was not only able to say that he continued to be a Jew, he was also able to say that he continued to be a Pharisee. The son of Pharisees, which means he was at least third generation. It's interesting that Paul didn't see his faith in Mashiach as even affecting his Phariseeism. Wow. Unless he was just lying through his teeth there. But I don't think Paul lied through his teeth. I think he was consistent. I think he told the truth. He was a man of integrity. Um, 22 verse 16. I love this too. Paul's telling a story. Talks about Hananiah and Ananias when he goes to Brother Saul. And um, his, his, the scales are taken from his eyes. <laughs> and <laughs> Listen to this. Um, 22 verse um, 15. You will be a witness for him to all men 
of what you have seen and heard. And then how does he finish? Now, what do you, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So, you know, when, when it comes to someone coming to faith in Yeshua, in the first century, it was like, what are you waiting for? Let's get you baptized, right? And uh, sometimes today in the evangelical world, we see we're a little like a little more lax about baptism. It's like, well, you know, maybe after a couple of years, if you feel if you feel ready, then maybe maybe you can consider getting. But you know, in, in in the first century, it was like, do you believe in Yeshua? If the answer is yes, what are you waiting for? Let's get you in the water, right? So uh, that that is something that we want to. That's an approach that we want to uh, uphold in our congregation, also. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you in your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page where you can make a one-time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together, and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.